As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Today is an extremely important topic, one that I admittedly do not know enough about, even though I do try to keep up to date. But oftentimes with what's going on in the world today, people are constantly and rightfully so reminding us to keep talking about Sudan. Do not forget Sudan. So I felt it quite important to speak about Sudan in this moment and to give people an awareness of what's happening because oftentimes people will say, okay, I don't know how to support. I don't know what's actually going on. So with that in mind, welcome my good, good friend to the Malcolm Effect, Azhar. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Mamadou? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for agreeing to come on the Malcolm Effect and speak about a very important topic. So I guess my first question is, in speaking about what's happening in Sudan, where do we start? What is happening could you give us some historical background? All right. So I, Sudan is different from many countries because it's very complicated. It has different layers. There's different influencers, different contributors. But I think if you want to understand what's happening today, the breakout of the war, it's important to understand the history because history is our present, as um, James Baldwin states. So historically, Sudan has had a very long history of coups. Sudan has had six successful coups and 26 claimed or failed coups since its independence in 1956. The Sudanese Armed Forces, known as the SAF today, they've had a lot of power and influence over the Sudanese government. And there's always been this battle of power between a potential civilian-led government and a military-led government. So in 1989, Bashir, the former president of Sudan, took down a democratic government and led a military coup. He was then in power for almost 30 years, and it was obviously a military government at the time because he was a previous officer from the military himself. So kind of given the frequency of military coups happening in the past, Bashir did things a bit differently from the previous presidents in Sudan, and he expected potential rivalry to emerge. He expected a potential coup uh, to play out against him. So he used a strategy known as the coup proofing strategy, which kind of basically refers to surrounding yourself with potential protectors and diversifying power in order to maintain it. So he maintained strong relationships with the power, the different bodies he empowered. One of the bodies was obviously the SAF. He armed the SAF and he relied on them heavily to eradicate any opposing groups um, or any opposing rebel groups. And this was specifically for South Sudan at the time before the separation. So um, the SAF and their allied militias fought rebel groups and fought the SPLM known as the Sudan People's Liberation Movement. It's important to also note that these rebel groups started emerging because of the centralization of development within Sudan. And this primarily goes back to the structure of the British colony. It also has a, an ethnic element to it, which um, we'll kind of go on to later. 
So back to power. So in order to diversify power as well, instead of also heavily relying on the SAF, he relied on local Arab militias um, known as the Janjaweed. As he relied on them for specifically Darfur. So at the time, Darfur was always also very frustrated because what was happening in the context of Darfur and the context of South Sudan, these were the areas that were that had the resources that Sudan was depending on. South Sudan had, you know, they discovered oil there, Darfur had gold, and they weren't getting any of the benefits of these resources. Uh, instead, the development was quite centralized, uh, focused on Khartoum, the capital city mostly. So what happens then is he tries, because this was a potential opposition, he tries to eradicate through the Janjaweed, tries to eradicate rebel groups, tries to also ethnically cleanse the Africanized um, Darfurians. Then he commits the Darfurian genocide, which is known as the longest genocide in the world, took away uh, the lives of at least 400,000 people, destroyed 3,000 villages, and you know the consequences just go on. So the Janjaweed was also supported by the SAF, partially, but the SAF was quite busy with South Sudan and the civil war in South Sudan at the time. The Janjaweed's leader was Muhammad Hamdan Dagalo, known as Himeti. He was trusted, heavily trusted by al-Bashir. And al-Bashir actually used to call him his protection. In, in Arabic, it's called Himaiti. So it, it literally means my, my protection. So fast forward to 2011, the South, South Sudan separates from Sudan. And this made Sudan lose much of its oil revenues that it highly depended on. Before 2011, after its discovery of the oil revenue, Sudan had one of the fastest growing economies in the world. And uh, after the separation, they obviously lost that, which um, affected the economy, increased inflation rates. Uh, in the same time, while that was happening, al-Bashir legitimized the Janjaweed and gave them a paramilitary status in kind of the government and the military as well. And he named them as the rapid support force that we know today, the RSF. The Bashir also gave him a thief financial autonomy, and he allowed him to take control of some of Darfur's gold mines. He allowed him to send troops into external wars for money. He allowed him to smuggle weapons and minerals as well. And this, this kind of started empowering the RSF more. He also simultaneously uh, gave the SAF uh, power through um, weapon production and through telecommunications. So at this point, 60 to 70 percent of the country's revenue was going to the RSF and SAF. The economic, economic crisis got worse in Sudan, especially after the separation. And al-Bashir's protection scheme was tested, basically, because massive demonstrations broke out towards the end of 2018. And it kind of resulted in the biggest Sudanese revolution in history. Uh, it started in Adbara, and then it escalated in different states around Sudan, and then it also shifted to the capital city of Khartoum. The RSF and SAF together tried to break down these protests violently, attacked protesters, took the lives of many martyrs, uh, but that didn't stop the demonstrations. And on April 19th, 2019, or actually right before it, the SAF and RSF started realizing that the pressures weren't getting any less and that al-Bashir's kind of role as a president started becoming weak. So what they did is they colluded. And then in April 19th, they contributed to the removal of al-Bashir's regime. So 
the public consensus of both the leaders at the time, I mean, and still to this present day, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who is the leader of and is still the leader of the SAF, and obviously Hemeti too, the leader of the RSF. People, you know, in terms of public consensus, people were not happy. And people knew that both leaders were not fit for leadership for various reasons. I mean, obviously, they both contributed to the Darfur conflict. Burhan was actually for a good while watching over Hemeti and training Hemeti while he was committing the Darfur genocide. They also contributed to the eradication and killing of protesters during the uprising. And in simple terms, they both originated from the military, which defeated the demand of the revolution. The demand of the revolution was quite clear. The demonstrations, the revolution, the demand was basically that a civilian-led government is to be formulated. So... The demonstrations continued throughout the country, and then in June 3rd, uh, 2019, both the SAF and RSF committed another attack in Khartoum, killing more than 100 protesters and also demolishing the massive sit-ins that took place in a strategic uh, spot yeah, in, front of, in front of the military HQ known as Al-Qiyada. So this was the time where... Sudan suddenly, you know, got momentum from the outside world. There was external pressure. You, everyone was turning their profiles blue. You would see celebrities suddenly talking about Sudan. You would see performances in the Grammys for Sudan. And this was a huge step because before people didn't even know where Sudan is. So this external pressure kind of um, also influenced civil societies to continue demonstrating and civil societies within and also outside of Sudan. And this pressured the UK, US, Saudi Arabia, and Ethiopia, and also the African Union, along with other countries. But these, especially, you know, the aforementioned countries and, and, and NGOs contributed to a kind of negotiations between protesters, the SAF and the RSF. And this led to the power sharing agreement. They signed a power sharing agreement between all bodies, and they agreed to formulate a civilian-led government that is overseen by a sovereign council. So the sovereign council consisted of a civilian and military body. It was the head of it was Burhan, the deputy of it was Hemeti, and uh, the civilian-based leader and the prime prime minister was Abdullah Hamdok who um, you know was previously working in the African Union. So what happens next is, I mean, actually going back to the Sovereign Council, it also consisted of 11 members. Um, There was five members from the Forces of Freedom of Change, which were quite important during the revolution. And they represented uh, resistance committees for the longest time. There was five members from the Transitional Military Council, the TMC, and there was one member chosen by consensus from both sides. So the agreement was signed by all parties, and they agreed that the TMC would lead Sudan's transitional government for the first 21 months. So the military would have authority then. And they also agreed that the next 18 months, after the 21 months, basically, the military would pass over its leadership to the civilian-led government until the elections, and the civilian-led government will also carry out the elections in 2022. So side note... From 2019, you know, since the downfall of al-Bashir until right before the war, there's been a huge vacuum of power. And I think this huge vacuum of power is what strengthened different bodies, especially the RSF. Everyone was trying to, 
you know, everyone was trying to grab their hands on the seat, you know, the presidential seat. So the RSF legitimized itself more than it was before. They created bilateral uh, trade agreements on minerals. They created diplomatic ties. The SAF did the same thing, specifically Burhan. Each side would entertain certain agendas, uh, certain countries. So the RSF was also empowered heavily by Europe because Europe would pay the RSF to block the borders to prevent immigrants from coming in. And the UAE also empowered the RSF. The Wagner Group in Russia also empowered the RSF. The SAF is empowered more from mostly Arab regions, so Saudi Arabia, Egypt, especially too, Egypt, um, Sudan, they preferred Sudan to also be led by a military government, you know, for their own benefits, because they prefer that the region is to be dominated by a military rule. So both these leaders, Burhan and Hemeti, continued whining and dining with their new partners for strategic, um, strategic you know, reasons. And then a month before, so November 2021 is when the military government was supposed to pass on, you know, the power to the civilian government. A month before, October of 2021, Burhan and Hemeti expectedly led a military coup. So during this coup, they hijacked the civilian government. They completely dismantled its presence. They detained officers, ministers, civil society activists, journalists, and they put Abdullah Hamdok on house arrest. And this move automatically made Burhan the de facto leader. And Himeti was still obviously the vice president. And it uh, got rid of the assigned civilian political leaders in the government who were assigned by Abdullah Hamdok. But but both Burhan and Himeti still continued getting external pressures from especially the West. The West was kind of pressuring them to continue the democratic uh, transitional process. And uh, Hamdok came back into these discussions. He was also released uh, from his house arrest. And he agreed to come back as prime minister only with the exception of um, political detainees to be released, with the exception of the killing of protesters to stop, and also with the exception of creating a clear agreement um, between the military and civilians, basically a clear agreement on when the power is to be passed, how it's supposed to be passed from that point onwards. Obviously, they failed to do so. They continued killing protesters. They did not create a clear agreement. And Burhan, I'm sorry, Hamdok then eventually resigned, which kind of put Burhan and Himeti, gave them more authority because the presence of um, kind of the civilian government or the previous, previous political actors that were present before were no longer there. And then you begin to see at that point that Burhan starts to reinstate previous political members from the Bashir regime, you know, previous Islamists. However, regardless, it was known that the military coup was not a success. And both Burhan and Himeti were under internal pressure from revolutionists, from the FFC, from UNITAMS, which was a mission that was sent by the UN Security Council to uh, assist in the democratic transitional government of Sudan, and also to assist in mediations between the different bodies. There was also external pressures from regional powers and from um, the West too. So at that point, the two generals agreed, supposedly agreed, I wouldn't say agreed, but you know, supposedly agreed on passing over power to civilians, but they continued putting off the agreement 
because of they, they disagreed on one point, and it was the integration process of the RSF within the Sudanese army or the SAF. So their problem, the, the, the one point that they disagreed on, they even agreed on integrating the RSF into the SAF, but they couldn't agree on the time. So the, the SAF was demanding that the integration would happen in a period of two years. The RSF was insisting that it happened in a period of 10 years. So the disagreement between Burhan and Himati consequently increased tensions between armed forces. And by the 11th of April 2023 of this year, the RSF began to illegally mobilize its forces <clears throat> around uh, Khartoum. So, I mean, I remember, honestly, even months before, months before April, I remember witnessing a sudden mobilization of forces and road blockages on the main streets in Khartoum. But you know, this was to some extent normal because when there would be million marches, when there would be demonstrations, the military would immediately spread out its forces. But this time it was quite excessive. It was an excessive presence of different forces. And I also remember speaking to people on ground and um, hearing people were expecting this. People were expecting a potential war to break out, maybe not to this magnitude, but they, you know, they were expecting a war to break out and you could see investors that came in, you know, business investors that came in to invest in Sudan after the revolution, because there was this, this energy of optimism after the revolution. The Sudanese diaspora started moving back to Sudan. So you could see the diaspora leaving Sudan again. You could see business investors withdrawing their businesses. And there was an honest preparation for the war. People were, you know, you could hear people buying supplies. You can hear diplomats leaving a couple of days before political leaders removing their families. Uh, from Sudan a few days before the outbreak of the war. And so by April 15th, you know, the tensions resulted in a clash between the two bodies, the SAF and the RSF. Who started it is still up for debate. Both sides are pointing fingers at each other. What's important is the detrimental effects and the consequences of, of the war. This is the first time ever that um, Khartoum the capital city experiences war and Sudan experiences war to this scale, more conflict to this scale. So, I mean, right now, you know, 7 million people have been displaced, 3 million consisting of uh, children. And Sudan has the highest number of displaced people in the world right now. 70% of hospitals have either been bombed or are out of service. More than 12,000 reported deaths you know, have been recorded. And I expect this number to be much, much more because bear in mind that these regions are, you know, inaccessible. The RSF is taking control of these areas. They're not allowing people in. And some areas still have kind of, you know, there's still conflict going on. So NGOs or even resistance committees don't have accessibility. So what you see is pictures of decaying bodies around Khartoum, unidentified bodies around Khartoum and Darfur. And this is also increased waterborne diseases uh, and, and kind of, you know, deaths related to these diseases. There's also been massive lootings as well, massive lootings in Khartoum, and therefore the RSF has kicked out people out of their homes. They turned their homes into weapon warehouses, or they simply just moved into these houses. Um, they, they, I'm hearing crazy stories of wedding ceremonies taking place in our houses, or I'm hearing stories of families, the RSF soldiers moving in their families into these houses. And also, again, this just goes, you know, side note as well, it's not only Khartoum and Darfur, but Madani right now, the second biggest state as of last week, 
is also experiencing the same thing because the RSF took control of Madani. And the RSF is also, again, there are people who are privileged, who are able to leave, who are able to evacuate. Many weren't because it was quite expensive to evacuate your family out. So many are still trapped and the RSF is stopping food, medical or water supply from coming into these regions as well. And there's also been an increase in rape and sexual assaults by RSF, mostly RSF soldiers. So the RSF is dominating Khartoum right now, is like I said, taking over Madani and it's also taken over five states in Darfur, so the majority of Darfur at this point. And with Darfur, it's even more complicated and the consequences are even more because they've also attempted to kind of revive history again and ethnically cleanse um, the Masali tribe, which is known to be an African tribe. Now I have a problem with referring to any form of tribe as African or Arab, because I feel like that contributes to the contributes to the identity politics of Sudan, which I think is a big factor behind what's happening today. But I'll use the term African or Arab tribe for the sake of just clarity and, you know, for the sake of explaining uh, what's going on on ground. But I'm also speaking to my previous co-workers from different UN agencies, and they're telling me that because Sudan is overshadowed by other emerging conflicts, this is preventing it from receiving aid. So you have UN agencies either downsizing their teams or closing down as a whole in the peak of Sudan's crisis. And you have also um, internal analysts and also external analysts and governments as well, the Egyptian government, the U.S. government, they're all um, predicting that a potential fragmentation of the country might uh, happen. So another split might happen. There's been negotiations between the RSF that were led by the U.S., by Saudi, by Egypt, by the African Union, obviously not necessarily serving the people, the Sudanese people per se. Each country has its own agenda. But What's important is that during these negotiations that are taking place right now, there's actually Burhan and Himeti were supposed to meet <laughs> end of this month, and then Himeti withdrew, saying that he wants to delete, sorry, delay, um, and delay the meeting to beginning of next month due to technical issues. But what I'm hearing from these negotiations is that the RSF, you know, what they put into the table is that the RSF is to take over Darfur and parts of Kurdufan as well. Yeah, while the SAF takes over the east and northern Sudan. So the Arabized region is would be controlled, so-called Arabized region is controlled by the SAF, and then the Africanized region is controlled by... So kind of like a power-sharing then, a power-sharing agreement of the country. Well, maybe power-sharing or even worse, in the worst scenario, a potential split. And that's, yeah, the, exactly. that's what the questions are, yeah. Like a potential split, a divide, uh, just like what happened in South Sudan, a split between Darfur, essentially, and the rest of Sudan. Yeah. Thank you, Azhar. You almost answered every single question I have today. That was, <laughs> no, no, thank you so much for so eloquently and elaborately detailing what is happening with the historical context. So we hear these forces, RSF, SAF, you've mentioned them a couple of times, maybe a bit more about who they are, but also what do they want? Well, in terms of the RSF, kind of, they're... As I mentioned earlier, they were they started off as the Janjaweed and they were initially Himeti specifically and the Janjaweed as a whole was recruited to number one to protect Al Bashir from uh, emerging uh, kind of coups 
And number two, they're also, you know, hired to commit the committed Darfur genocide, so to ethnically cleanse certain tribes in Darfur. So they're basically an Arab militia. The Janjaweed actually refers to evil horsemen or a man on the horse with a gun, which kind of represents what they are today. The RSF, as well as the SAF, they've both kind of stolen the slogan of the revolution. They both claim that they're here to represent civilians. They both claim that they're here kind of pass leadership over to civilians once the war ends. The RSF claims that it's here to eliminate al-Bashir's allies and the Islamists that come with it. And he, Himati claims that Burhan, and rightfully so, honestly, Burhan and his Islamist allies who were part of al-Bashir's regime want to come back. And we, we call them Kazan. So the Kazan, you know, want to come back. So he... He believes that he's actually doing this, or he claims that he's doing this in the name of the people. The SAF is simply a body, the military body of the country. And the SAF is quite mixed too. They do originate, most of them do originate, again, from the previous regime and were trained by the previous regime. And also just side note, when I say Islamists, I don't literally mean Islamists. Um, I, I think politics has shown us that Islamists tend to abuse the rulings of Islam. My father actually uses, you know, these two interesting terms. He always tells me that I call them the specifically al-Bashir's regime and people, his followers, the Kazan. I call them Islamiyin rather than Islamiyin. And then he he says that because he you know he claims that Islamiyin don't represent the authentic rulings of Islam and they use Islam as a bridge to kind of gain legitimacy and to serve a certain political agenda. But yeah, that that that's who they are in the RSF as well. Like they they've just one point that they they they've become they've also managed to legitimize themselves even more through um Canadian lobbyists from specifically there's companies like um you know firms the Dixon and Madison uh, firm which is run by an ex-Israeli spy. And this is a PR firm that's running Himeti's PR stunt right now. And he's their, their PR is quite impressive. The RSFs, if you see on Twitter or now known as X, it's impressive what they say and how they actually speak in the name of civilians when they don't really represent civilians. Wow. No, thank you so much. So I guess my next question is, what is happening on the ground right now then? What does daily life look like in the parts of Sudan that are affected? I mean, I, I can't. I mean, it's, it's it's what I kind of explained earlier. It's, it's people feel very pessimistic. We went from having a lot of hope, having a lot of faith and just really envisioning Sudan to play out very differently from now to being super pessimistic now. <clears throat> there's, on you know, we feel underrepresented too. And there's a lot that's happening on ground. There's the lootings that are taking place. There's the tragic occurrences of the RSF gaining more and more dominance on ground, taking over. Madani was a strategic point for Sudan. So when the RSF took over Madani, if you, if you spoke to the public, they'd you could feel the pessimism. You could feel that they've lost hope that the war is almost over and the RSF is going to kind of take over. But, you know, it's, it's, it's what I kind of explained earlier where the death toll is increasing. There's a lack of humanitarian aid, humanitarian presence on ground. There's lack of reporting. It's, it's, it's like a playground. The RSF 
and the SAF can get to get away with what they want to do. And you hear these awful crimes when, you know, on Twitter, there's just, there was a trend a couple of days ago of women asking for plan B pills, women asking sheikhs um, if they could commit suicide, you know, commit suicide if, if, if that was permissible because they were either raped or were potentially going to be raped by the RSF. So, I mean, it's it's quite detrimental what, what's happening on ground. And then there's families that haven't been able to bury their dead. There's also, you know, the, the massive, um, Chad is, Chad right now, I think it 1,000 to 3,000 refugees are coming in on a daily basis through Darfur at Chad. So there's a huge influx of also internally displaced people moving from one region to the other. And it's quite sad because a lot of the people that, are in Medani right now. They already escaped the war in Khartoum. So now they're leaving again. They don't know where to go because the war is expected to escalate in other regions soon. Port Sudan is expected to escalate in Gadarif as well, in Kassala. So different states that still are not exposed to the conflict as much as you know the other regions. Thank you. Some of the cursory reading that I've done has suggested that there's a racialized component to this. Is it true? Yeah, no, definitely. I think the racial component is one that's not talked about enough. And honestly, I would go as far as to argue that the racial component component is one of the core reasons behind the current war. And when I, for clarification, when I use racism in this context, I don't mean Western racism. I mean racism that fits the context of Sudan and potentially even Africa in a general scale. It's uh, a racial divide that has different influencers, that has a different history, that also contributes to the complexity of colorism too. So in terms of the racial divide, Sudan is a victim of two forms of imperialism, both British imperialism and Arab imperialism, the former spoken of less. So both forms either deny or degrade Sudan's blackness. And I think the consequence of this is that Sudan becomes neither Arab enough nor African enough to itself or the rest of the world. So um, it kind of creates this rejection of the self. And I know that the voice famously explains this as the double consciousness. So in the context of Sudan, the average Sudanese looks at himself through the lens of his oppressor. So in this context, especially, I think now more so than British imperialism, but you know, they look at themselves through the lens of Arab imperialists. And then they begin to doubt their blackness. They, it creates a sense of confusion on what a Sudanese really is. And it's quite ironic because the, the literal translation of Sudan is land of the blacks. Yeah. So, I mean, the confusion exacerbates identity politics within Sudan. And it also, I mean, as we spoke of earlier, it, it, it was one of the main reasons behind the eradication of so-called African presence or even multi, you know, religious or ethnic presence in Sudan. And the most basic example is the civil war and the oppression that happened in South Sudan. And I don't think that's spoken of enough. And the South Sudanese did not fit the basic model of what an Arabized Sudanese is and hence why they experience what they experience. It also influences who gets opportunities and who doesn't. So by the way, when I speak of racial divide, I also 
I, I think this goes far beyond politics. It exists even within our communities. So, you know, you, you see racial terms and labels are used amongst us and you see this clear divide of opportunities. You also see racial classism, uh, racial classism, which um, I think, you know, I would argue is also one of the reasons behind the war today. As Karl Marx, Marx predicted, you know, the rich get richer, the rich being in the context of Sudan, the Arabized part of Sudan or those coming from Arab um, tribes. And then you see the poor getting poorer, and these were so-called African tribes coming from Darfur, Darfur or Kurdufan. And you also see the alienation of Darfur and Kurdufan, alienation in terms of development, in terms of also re receiving uh, the revenue of production in the country. And this created a, a strong capi capitalistic structure in Sudan. So, I mean, again, community-wise, you would see that the lighter skin, the lighter you are, sorry, the lighter your skin is, the more respected and glorified you are, and the more likely you'd be able to hold higher posts or run bigger businesses. And in a historical context, these ideologies were enforced by the Arabs who came into Sudan in the 7th century for trade, uh, trade of resources, and also for slave trade. And this was soon legitimized by Hassan Hassan Turabi and Jafar al-Nimari, who both served uh, served you know presidency in Sudan for a couple of years, and they imposed these Arabized social political supremacist idea, ideals even more. And Hassan al-Turabi went as far as to create a national Islamic front that provided uh, al-Bashir with an ideological ideological arsenal that declared Sudan as an Islamic state and uh, fortified the imposition of the Sharia law as well. So, I mean, in terms of contemporary politics, Sudanese politics was always dominated by Arabized, Sudan, the Arabized Sudanese political elite. And you could see this, obviously, with Burhan. And this created a superiority complex and an inferiority complex. Superiority complex in the context of, so Northerners were considered to be more superior than, let's say, Darfurians or people in Kurdufan or the so-called African, uh, you know, African Sudanese. And uh, it created an inferiority complex because it, it increased this insecurity within these regions. And I think that's one of the reasons the RSF is what it is today. So it degraded a certain Sudanese identity. And again, it's very complicated. Sudan is super complicated. It creates another layer in Darfur, another layer of superiority complex, because the Arabized, basically Arabized uh, Darfurians perceived themselves as more superior than the Africanized Darfurians. And, you know, this explains what's happening today where they're attempting, the RSF is attempting to ethnically uh, cleanse the, the Af African Darfurians again. There's actually a very interesting story, not an interesting, a horrible incident, a horrible story of al-Bashir when he was, so at the time, you know, when al-Bashir was still president of Sudan and the ICC, the International Criminal Court, was obviously holding him accountable for the Darfur genocide. And one of the things they spoke of was the rape cases that were committed by the Janjaweed at the time and now the RSF. So al-Bashir responds by saying that the Forawiya woman, meaning the Darfurian woman, and Forawiya is associated with Africanness, the Forawiya woman is lucky if she gets raped by a Ja'ali. And a Ja'ali tribe is associated with the Arab Arabized tribes of Sudan. So that kind of represented the ideology of the government at the time and, you know, their contribution to identity politics. And I believe 
again, beyond the Darfur genocide and the South Sudan also civil war, and also the attempt to ethnically cleanse the Masalit, I think that this divide formulated and built fury. It built a sense of rebelliousness. It obviously built insecurity. And it, 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 it made a certain part of Sudan adamant about seeking leadership to prove, to prove their identity and to prove their power. And this certain body is what I think is the RSF today. So I think, honestly, if in order for Sudan to move forward, we need to really confront ourselves and come clean towards our contributions towards this racial divide on a personal level, on a political level. Self-intervention is very important. And just acknowledging our history and our imperialistic influences and our current influences, too, because the Arab region is still getting very involved as to you know, what Sudan is, how Sudan is to shape itself, what, who the Sudanese consider themselves. So, you know, we have to come clean with how we've contributed to, we all have, I mean, as Northerners, how we've contributed to the oppression of Darfurians, the oppression of South Sudanese directly and indirectly, directly, you know, indirectly by, sorry, not speaking up, indirectly by not acknowledging at the time what was happening in South Sudan or Darfur. But there is definitely a change of energy during the revolution. You would you would read slogans on on how the whole of Sudan is Darfur and how the Bashir regime is a racist regime. So there is a change in the narrative a little. Thank you, you know. so much once again. Again, when you try to follow a few leads on what's happening on Sudan, UAE comes up quite a lot. So what is the role of the UAE in this? Um so the UAE is its its history goes back to I think they, they have a strong bond with the RSF right now and, and it goes back to 2018 where the UAE basically funds the RSF to fight off soldiers in Yemen and that bond only became stronger within you know the years and Himeti you'd see Himeti suddenly having flying out to the UAE and having constant meetings with important figures. Actually, two weeks before the war broke out, Hemeti had a meeting with Mansour bin Zayed, who is the vice president of the UAE. Basically, Hemeti trades minerals with the UAE because he controls mining, transportation, iron, and steel investments. And yeah, he extracts these minerals mostly from the West. And again, during that vacuum, that period where there was a vacuum of power, he gained more power by taking over more gold refineries in Sudan. So, and this includes 11 gold refineries. And this also includes Jabin Amir, which is the largest gold miner in Sudan. And it releases $16 billion yearly. And the UAE gets 99% of that. So there is a strong kind of, you know, economic benefit for the UAE there. They also are invested in agriculture investments in Sudan. And I think the scenario of UAE, as well as other kind of playing other states, other contributing states, is the simple scenario of a resource curse playing out here, where, you know, the resources in Sudan, be it oil in the past or even gold at this point, or even in terms of agriculture, it's attracting external forces that are exploiting exploiting Sudan's social political instability for their own benefits. And this is what's happening in the UAE. So the UAE is sending recently was caught sending flights in the pretext of refugee rescue missions uh, in the borders of Darfur and Chad. And these flights were supposed to be sending in humanitarian aid, but instead 
Uganda. So the flight had to pass through Uganda. An inspection was carried out, and they found out that these flights actually supplied weapons and drones. And just a few, you know, a couple of weeks before that, there was an agreement between Idris Debi, the president of Chad, and Hamad bin Zayd, a businessman from UAE's royal family. And they, they were planning out these flights that were supposed to be landing in Amjaras Airport in Chad. And obviously in the name of humanitarian aid, but they were military supplies that were smuggled in to Darfur through uh, Western Darfur specifically. They also carried, no, sorry, there was also anti-tank missiles that were found in Sudan during the war that had UAE logos and tags in them. And then you'd also see um, GSK, which is a company that's based in the UAE. You know, you'd see that they were supervising the RSF's accounts on social media. And the RSF is really depending on uh, its PR to legitimize itself. So, I mean, you see in different different aspects, the UAE's involvement with the RSF and how UAE is empowering the RSF because the RSF at this point, as many would argue, is more powerful than the Sudanese military, which, you know, is quite shocking. Yeah. Wallahi, between the UAE's involvement in what you documented about Sudan and what you accounted for and how they're so pro-Israel, I don't know a more accursed Arab regime. I mean, all the Arab regimes, to be honest, are accursed for the most part, but UAE specifically, la'natullahi mm-hmm. alayhim. That's all I can say, man. May the curse of Allah be upon them. That's all I can say. And my problem with them is that they don't take, you know, they don't take responsibility. You know, they pretend to be neutral. They pretend to not get involved in politics. But, you know, under the table, they're, they're amongst the worst. Asfala Saifalin. Amongst the worst of people. Asfala Saifalin, definitely. And finally, I think something that's really important. I think oftentimes we talk about Palestine and we're talking about ways people can support Palestine, which is extremely important. And oftentimes with Palestine, it seems a bit more clear cut as in like we can boycott or we can, you see what I mean? People find it maybe perhaps easier to get involved. So I think what's important, two things I think are important. The first thing is what the last 40 minutes have been, which have been people need to be aware of what's happening. And I think you've given a brilliant explanation so people can now understand what is happening. But I guess the second step is now, those of us who are in the diaspora, those of us who are not in Sudan, what can we do to help? I think it all starts with reading up on what's happening in Sudan and also reading up more on the history of Sudan, because that's part of the reason why we're here today. So reading as much as possible and being well-informed, there are a lot of great Sudanese activists that have been in the game since 2013 when these demonstrations uh, first kind of broke out. I would suggest start by following these pages so you get daily updates of what's happening on ground. There's also the RSF. The RSF has, RSF soldiers are sharing surprisingly sharing their daily updates, what they're doing during the day, you know, how they spent time with their family, how many people they've killed per day. And it's it's really shocking to see that they are still present. I know on Facebook, because of internal pressure, they took down the RSF's page, but on Twitter, they're still quite present and they're still sharing a lot there. So reporting these RSF pages, whether it's the official RSF page, whether it's Himeti's page, whether it's the, the you know RSF soldiers' pages as well, reporting these pages would be quite helpful. And going on to the UAE, boycotting 
any UAE-based businesses. Also, I know many people who are avoiding visiting the UAE because it depends heavily on tourism. They're avoiding flying Emirates. They're avoiding flying Etihad. And the UAE heavily depends on publicity too. So just publicly talking about what's happening and how they're contributing to this war in Sudan and contributing to other conflicts in the region as well is quite important. Another thing that um, the Sudanese diaspora is organizing is obviously demonstrations in different countries around the world, but also gathering civil societies to pressure their governments in order to intervene and hold different players accountable for supplying weapons. So there's been a pre-litten letter that's been circulating on Twitter for citizens from the US, from UK, Canada, and Australia. So um, these letters are for their governmental representatives to pressure, you know, to well demand for a ceasefire, A, and to demand for an actual humanitarian aid, aid support in Sudan, and also demand regulation and legislation controls of the arms being sent to Sudan through different players like the UAE. So just pressuring your government's demonstrations in front of various embassies, in front of UAE embassy, in front of also governmental institutions is important. And um, sharing, I always say this, people really underestimate the power of sharing a simple post. Someone on Twitter wrote the other day that they were saying that speaking about Sudan feels like you're screaming into a void because of the lack of reciprocation, the lack of momentum there is. And uh, I honestly think that goes down to the normalization and the dehumanization of the loss of Black lives, but that's a whole topic of its own. But when you see these posts, when you see the Sudanese screaming out for help, share, share as much as you can. And in the past, in, in during the revolution, during the June attacks, even after the military coup, what's forced these different parties to sit down and negotiate was external pressure that started, you know, it had a bottom-up approach. It started from the ground, it started from civil societies, it started from activists, and then it led to these parties to kind of sit down and negotiate. So just speaking more, sharing more, and also empowering the emergency rooms that are led by civil societies on ground. So donating to these, I'm very reluctant when it comes to donating to organizations, but if you follow um, the pages of these act of certain activists, they, they'll show you reliable sources, reliable civil society led emergency rooms that help on ground. So donating as much as you can and just following what's happening and assisting Sudanese refugees that are coming into various countries. They're coming into Egypt, they're coming into they're coming into Uganda, coming into Ethiopia, you know, UAE as well, there's Saudi. So assisting them, I know wonderful volunteers from Egypt that went up to the borders to assist the Sudanese coming in, to help them settle down, to help them sort out their papers. So that's a great way, um, you know, people can help too outside of Sudan. Yeah, thank you so much. So what I'm going to do, people, in the description of this episode, I'm going to post several accounts to follow and who are trustworthy, reliable Stay updated. Don't forget about Sudan. This is an issue that should pull at the hearts of every single person who has a care for humanity in this moment. And our prayers are always going to be with the people of Sudan. And Azhar, thank you so much for this. This has been a masterclass for me, and I'm sure the listeners will feel the same way. Until next time, peace out. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Mamadou. Thank you so much. <laughs>